0: If you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, these are the words of Paul, Apostle Paul to Timothy. And starting in verse 6, he writes this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, And gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us without for everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. A couple years ago, I came across an article in Forbes uh, that talked about this event that happened in Chicago back in 1923. And this is always something that just has fascinated me and, It may be that it was legend, it may have really happened, but as the story goes, in 1923, a meeting of America's most powerful men took place at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. And attending this meeting were nine of the wealthiest, powerful men in the US. At this meeting, the president of America's largest steel company was there, the president of America's largest utility company, the president of America's largest gas company, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, the nation's greatest wheat speculator, the nation's greatest bear and speculator on Wall Street, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, a member of President Harding's cabinet, and it was said that they were all gathered in celebration of their success, as well as an opportunity to plan future exploits and dominance, kind of an inner circle of these powerful, wealthy men gathered together in 1923. But what was interesting is that these nine men gathered together, their lives soon changed radically. In fact, 25 years later, if you would look at these men's life, almost all of them had something devastating happen. Within 25 years, all of these met horrific ends to their careers and some of them to their lives. The president of the largest steel company, Charles Schwab, maybe you've heard of him, died of bank- he's died a bankrupt man. The largest gas company, Howard Hopson, suffered a mental breakdown ending up in an insane asylum. President of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, had just been released from prison. Bank President Leon Frazier had taken his own life. The wheat speculator, Arthur Cutten, died penniless Head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivar Krueger, the Match King, known for the great Ponzi scheme, also had taken his life. The member of President Harding's cabinet, Albert Fall, had just been given a pardon from prison so that he could die at home. And as for the Wall Street bear, James Lauriston Livermore, famous speculator in the stock commodities markets, the end, his end, perhaps, most tragic of all, a week after Thanksgiving in 1940, Jesse walked into a hotel in New York, had a couple drinks at the bar, scribbled something down on a notebook, proceeded to go to his room where he shot himself. He was 62 and he left behind 5 million down from a 100 million fortune that he had amassed 10 years earlier. What note had he scribed? It said, "My dear Nina, can't help it. Things have been bad with me. I'm tired of fighting. Can't carry on any longer." then this is the only way out. I am unworthy of your love, for I am a failure. Truly sorry, but this is the only way out for me. Pretty interesting story. Nine men, most powerful men in our country, wealthy captains of their industry. They have it all. Now, we know that some pretty significant world events happened between 1923 and then to the 19... 48, we have the Great Depression, we have World War II, these things that just flip the whole story on a lot of Americans at the time. But for these men to be at the top of their industries, this powerful, this wealthy, and all nine of them within 25 years to completely lose everything, we start asking a bunch of questions. What happened? Why did this happen? The mental breakdowns, the industries collapsing, You would think that if anyone had security, if anyone could make it through life and be okay, it would be them. Yeah, all of them, these devastating endings. Everything comes crashing down. We want to start this series this week and next week to talk about this idea of how to be rich. Because if rich was the goal, I think these lives would have turned out very differently. And one of the questions that I think we're constantly asking, and I know even I am as a pastor, is how can I get rich? This is something that is kind of subconsciously in the back of our minds. But what I want to talk about is how do we live wisely in a culture that's rich? And you might be thinking, well, I'm not rich, so this can't be for me, but I know some people that this is about. I'm not a rich person. What do we consider rich? Statistics show that if we make at least 48,000 a year in our household, we're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. That doesn't seem like a ton of money, it seems like a solid foundation. But the top 1% wage earners in the world, you'd be considered rich. Wealth is relative. You know this? When I've left the country and gone to some developing worlds, I don't feel like I'm rich when I'm hanging out with my friends leave the country, all of a sudden I feel very wealthy. It's this kind of moving target. Usually how we define rich, when we consider ourselves as someone else, we would say it's someone who has more than me. There's this powerful word, more. Well, I'm not rich. Why not? Because I know other people who are, they have more. Again, there's people who we have more than. And I would like to suggest that if we live in this Wonderful country with the wonderful provision of our neighborhoods. Even if we don't see ourselves as billionaires, we're a wealthy people. We live in a wealthy culture. There's a lot to be thankful for. No matter what you do, where you're at, if you're here in this room, worshiping in a place of freedom, you're wealthy. Some people will be like, don't tell me that. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm up against. I know. But it's a relative term. And we are a wealthy people. There's a lot to give thanks for. And wealth isn't a bad thing. Wealth isn't the reason these guys in Chicago messed up. But how we live wisely with our wealth, how to be rich, is something we must consider. This passage in... 1 Timothy, was written some 2,000 years ago. And maybe that's good news is that this idea of wealth isn't just kind of a North American, 21st century issue. It's a human issue. How do we live well and steward this life, the things that God has given us, in ways that don't corrupt our soul, in ways that allow us to have peace, harmony, blessing to others? So we consider this question, how do we be rich? How do we be rich? In First Timothy, Paul says a few things about wealth. And I want to kind of start the series this week. We'll edit next week. But the first thing he says, that, he says this about wealth. What does Paul say about wealth? He says, there is a loss of wealth that is for certain. That passage we just read. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of this world. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. The loss of wealth is for certain, is what Paul's communicating here. At some point, wealth comes and it goes. Now, some of you here are old enough to remember 2008. And you know wealth comes and wealth goes. Maybe some of you are getting ready to retire, and then the crash happens. And then all of a sudden, you see this nice little nest egg just disappear, just go away, lost. It it changes retirement plans. Do we have anyone in here that it it postpones things? It it changes things? Um, My wife and I got married in 2004. We bought a house in 2006. Now, humans have been on Earth for thousands and thousands of years. We bought a house in the worst year in the history of humanity to buy a home. Maybe you were affected by this. You saw how quickly your circumstances can change. And my guess is that most people in this room, something happened in in that time between 2007 and 2008 where your life changed. Maybe it was your housing situation. It was your job. It was your retirement plans. But it affected. There there was loss that came. And and if you've been alive long enough, you know that's not the only time this is going to happen. These kind of things happen. Loss is inevitable. Paul says, there is loss of wealth that is for certain. But what he's talking about is more than just kind of these ups and downs and flows of the market. What he's talking about is someday we pass on to the next life. And there's nothing we take with us. Alexander the Great who conquers the known world by the age of like 18 or something. Uh, High achievement level, you know. Not great to compare your life to him. Did an amazing thing, terrible thing, but amazing with his life. Conquers the world. The myth, the legend goes that when he dies, he wants his hands empty and showing at his funeral so that all of his generals, all the people can see that his hands are empty as he passes on from this life to the next. Once heard a story about a billionaire who was about to die. His family came and asked him the question, what is it that you've been? You're leaving behind. His response was, "Everything, everything. We take nothing with us to this next life. At some point, everything that we accumulate, everything that we work for, we lose. Whoever dies with the most toys still dies. It changes our perspective when we have this understanding that our lives here are temporary. And yes, there's this things, the thing that we work for, the thing that we." that we can, we can use to enjoy life, to bless other people. But it stops. We don't get to take it with us. It ends. I had the privilege of knowing um, a wealthy person in this world who, some of you know, passed away a couple of weeks ago, Ed Buckmaster. Ed's son, Mike, a lot of us call him Buck, one of my best friends, uh, went to his funeral. Ed is one of those men who just had a knack for making money, was able to do deals, uh, was able to, to flip things. It's like whatever he touched turned to gold. Um, I didn't get that gift. Some of you might have it. This is one of those people that just had, he was just good at that. And, and go to his funeral and kind of walk alongside Buck and Sarah, a man who dies, can't take anything with him. The stories that we heard at this funeral and and, and from the families who had kind of gathered, do you know what the stories were? They weren't stories of the great deals that Ed had made in this life, but story after story of how Ed had helped people, how Ed had done this, helped start that, stepped up for this family in need. Even in Buck, I remember him saying, like, there's stories that I didn't even know that my dad did. He's like, there are people I didn't even know my dad knew that I keep hearing these stories. What made Ed wealthy isn't the deals that he made, but what was shared at the funeral was his wealth was found in, how he used it, giving it away. Very wealthy man in this world. There is a loss of wealth that is for certain for all of us. We travel through this life with that perspective. Probably one of the things that stresses us out more than anything is our resources. The Lord give, the Lord taketh away. Brought us nothing into the world, we leave with nothing. Second thing Paul says, so there is a loss of wealth that is for certain. These will all start with the letter L, by the way. And there is a level of wealth that is sufficient. And this one's a little bit tricky. There's a level of wealth that is sufficient. And it's tricky because we're Americans, The thing that makes this such a beautiful country is our laissez-faire economics, capitalism, drive, ambition, building a better world, building better communities, and we like to go for it, and that's great. There's also a lot of unintended kind of consequences that come with that drive, with that vision, with that hope, a level of wealth that is sufficient. Paul says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. There's that word, content. Contentment, living a life of contentment. That's like almost counter to our culture. Like, what's wrong? Why wouldn't you go for it, go for more? But to live a life of contentment brings about a lot of peace to have limits, to have boundaries, to know when to stop, to know when to just be grateful for the things that we have. When we're content, we don't live above our means. We don't find ourselves in trouble. We don't constantly compare ourselves to the world around us, a world that's constantly telling us that we're not enough, that we need more. Content, when you translate it, is kind of this world idea of self-satisfaction, self-sufficiency. We have enough contentment. I feel like uh, some of the older people in this world are good at this. Hang around people from like the World War II generation, the greatest generation. People who've suffered well know how to be content. Then the boomers happened, right? And then us millennials, look what we're doing to the world. This idea of contentment, it's almost like an old natural characteristic of people who've gone through a lot in life and know when to be thankful for what they have. Contentment is hard to practice in our culture, to slow down, to stop, to be okay. I would say this younger generation, yeah, we get knocked for a lot of things, right? But I would say that I do think that it's a very driven generation. Which have different values, maybe, than some of the generations before us. But if there are two words I would use to describe the young generation, it's upgrade and update. Those are two things that are on the forefront of the younger generation's mind. Upgrading, 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 updating, updating, updating. In fact, your phone notifies you that you need to update like once a day. It's just constant this idea that more, more, nicer things, better things, upgrade, update. Uh, Contentment is something that my wife and I have learned to practice. And one of the things I, that has happened to us this year is, is we've kind of tried to you know, figure out our lives. We have an old minivan. It's a year 2000 Honda Odyssey. It doesn't have automatic doors. My wife hates it. I hate it that she has to drive it. And we've had opportunities to get something better to upgrade. Now... The car is safe. It's gas efficient. It gets us from point A to point B. But boy, does it look silly. I mean, it is like a status symbol. Like, what are you trying to prove, Jared? You're a pastor. You have to have this old. Yes, but we have a plan. And I remember we had, we've had we had a few chances to upgrade and get something better. And I'm 36 now. And this is one of those times where I felt like we actually had made an adult decision, which is hard. And it was a decision she was okay with where she says, we have a plan to get something, and I'm content to drive this for another year. Now, it might break down, something might happen to it, but we're okay in it because we have a plan. And one of the things that contentment does is it creates margin in your life. And margin is a wonderful thing. Paul says, There is a level of wealth that is sufficient. Are we content with life? Are we constantly chasing the next greatest, newest, better, nicer thing? There's some level of contentment where we just stop and we say, this is good. This is good. There's wisdom and contentment. Third thing Paul says, again, letter L, there is a love of wealth that is dangerous, a love of wealth that is dangerous. It says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, this is something I, it's always, I think, important to identify Money is not the root of all evil. It is amoral. It's not good. It's not bad. I I love the metaphor of it's like a brick. You can have a brick, and the brick is neither good or evil. With the brick, you can build something. You can build a house. You can build a fence. You can build a fountain. You can build all sorts of things with a brick. You could also take the brick and throw it through a window, and that would be destructive. But the brick itself is amoral. There's nothing good or evil about it. So it is with our resources. So it is with our wealth. So it is with money. Money's not evil. But there's this desire for it, this, this love of it that can become the root of evil. It's something that gets inside of us and it drives us, and we start to pursue it. Those who want to get rich can fall into a temptation and a trap. And this is the tricky thing. This is why our wealth requires wisdom. It's because it's something that can entrap us. Paul says that there's a trap here to look out for. And I would say that that word that traps us is this idea of greed. Greed traps us. Wealth is not evil, but this little thing called greed can be. Now, here's why. The first thing is that greed Warps are desires. Greed warps are desires. It's like an appetite. The more you feed it, the stronger it gets. The more powerful it becomes. I, uh, I'm like 6'2", 205 pounds. I'm kind of a fat man trapped in a skinny man's body. If you saw me in high school, super like skinny bone frame, And uh, got married and gained like 20 pounds. So went to Japan about 10 years ago to visit my sister, who was living there as a missionary. I was there for a week. And I remember flying into Japan at the airport at Sea of McDonald's. This was back when there was like mad cow disease or something. So the Is that what it's called? I can't remember. Something about mad cows. The beef's bad. (laughs) McDonald's is getting their beef from Australia. I land and I'm like looking around at all of these different places to eat. I have no idea, waiting for my sister to, get, to come. I'll grab a McDonald's, have this burger. It's absolutely terrible. Like the worst. Not that, I mean, not like McDonald's burgers are like awesome. This was bad. And I'm like, oh boy, I'm in a different land. Go home, hanging out with my sister. For a week, we eat Japanese food Okonomiyaki, Takoyaki, sushi, seaweed right? Everything that you would expect in Japan. I was hungry a lot. There for a week, I come home, I get off the plane, and Marcy's like, you look like a new man. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, did, did you eat the whole time you were there? I lost over 10 pounds in one week eating Japanese food. Get home, and I think like we went out to eat or something. This is back before we had kids, so we like went to Red... Red Robin or something, and I remember getting a burger, and I could only finish half of it. And I like couldn't even touch my fries. Usually, I eat the burger and the fries and then half of Marcy's meal. <laughs> Lose 10 pounds in a week, and here's what happened. My appetite shrunk. There's this little thing in Japan called <laughs> portion control. <laughs> and they don't eat 3,600 calories per meal. and they eat really healthy. And after a week of doing that, my appetite had shrunk, and I came back to the U.S., lost weight, and I couldn't finish a meal. I think the same thing happens with our wealth. I don't know physically how it happens, but we have this appetite where we just want, we just, we, we have to feed it. And when you get into this cycle, the more you feed it, the stronger that appetite becomes, this is the entrapment of greed. This is why contentment is so powerful. It keeps us from getting fat on the different things that we try to consume. It's an appetite that the more we give it, the stronger it gets, the more it drives us, the more that it entraps us. John Ortberg uh, has written a couple books that are just really good for the soul, but he Read this quote from him. He talks about this idea of of when we we want more, we pursue these different things. We get entrapped by our greed. Everybody thinks they need one thing to make themselves rich. And if we could just get this one thing, then we'd be wealthy. Do you know what that one thing is? More. More. That powerful word again. If I could just get more and we feed this appetite, greed warps our desires. Warps our desires. It's an appetite that we feed that grows stronger. The second thing is, it does is that greed makes us suffer from a thing called migration of hope. A migration of hope. Greed can do this to us. And what I mean by a migration of hope is that for the most part, we know what we put our hope in in this world. We believe in there's a sovereign God, from whom all blessings flow. He's this great provider for us. We're grateful for it. Our hope is in that. Our hope is in this idea of eternity, our salvation. Our hope is in God is with us. We get through life knowing God is with us. He sees us in the midst of whatever we go through. But there's this little thing that happens with greed that our hope starts to migrate from who God is, where our hope is found, And it slowly migrates to what we have, our own self sufficiency, security. And it doesn't just happen overnight, it kind of trickles into this other place where we put our hope in. We place our hope in different things that wealth offers, it becomes a substitute for God, it becomes something that we rely on. As Paul says, all that we own, could change in a flash of an eye. We put all of our hope and security into something, and it collapses. You start to understand the story of these nine powerful men in Chicago. It does something to you. The migration of hope. It pulls you away from the promises of God. And that's hard for us, too. Because I think there is a level of uh, of of wealth that wisely we put away to protect ourselves. And that's not what I'm talking about here. But my guess is that if I asked everyone in this room how much you need until you feel secure, do you know what your answer would be? More. <laughs> that word again. More. I'm guessing no one in this room's like, I've got it figured out, I'm secure. Again, it's this moving target. It feeds this appetite. If we could just get more, then we'll be secure. And what happens is when we put all of our hope and security into these material things, we're unavailable to be used by God in this world. When all of our hope is in him, not in material things, all of a sudden our lives become available. We can become world changers. God can use us to do anything because our trust is in him. When our trust is in our material possessions, it changes how we travel through this world. Greed has this way of entrapping us. It changes the focus of our hope, our desires, where we place our trust. It warps our desires. So how do we cultivate a heart of contentment? How do we live life wisely with wealth? How do we be rich in this world? Paul goes on to say, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Then he says this, Command those who are rich in this present world, which I don't want to admit, but I am. Command those who are rich in this present world. I would say that we live in this culture where we are wealthy. Command command us who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. Be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What a powerful phrase. To take hold of life that is truly life. Life that leads to satisfaction, contentment, blessed. Where true life is found, not in our material possession, but in God and being used of God life that is truly life as I read through Paul's letters two things continually pop up Paul's writing 2,000 years ago to communities of people imagine these groups of people are probably similar to this size coming together and the two things Paul keeps telling people These two themes. One is gratitude, recognizing the gifts that God has given you, and generosity, using those gifts to bless others. Gratitude and generosity. Gratitude and generosity. I see it over and over again in these letters. Gratitude and generosity. This week's Thanksgiving. There's a lot to be thankful for. If you're like me, Thanksgiving goes like this. You sleeping on Thursday. I don't do any turkey trots. (laughs) Sleeping on Thursday. Marcy makes monkey bread. Wake up. The kids are going to be watching one of the parades. I'm waiting for the Lions game, getting my fantasy football. Team prepped. At some point, go hang out with family. Eat more than we know how to eat, portion size. There's no control on that. We might go around the table. We might share. We might pray about what we're thankful for. And then we turn this corner, and it becomes, what do I want for Christmas? What do I want to get my kids? And in fact, we have to know because we do like this drawing, and we have to write down what our wishes are. And so (laughs) I'm thinking about that already, what I want. What if we just take this week and slow down? and say, what are we truly grateful for? Gratitude and generosity. We've been blessed with so much. So I'm going to call the van back up, and we're going to take some time to reflect on what we've experienced this year. I know not all of you have had amazing years. You've had hard things happen. There's something powerful when we write out a list of the things that we're grateful for when we count our blessings, when we give thanks. I'm going to take a few minutes to sit in silence and just say thank you to God. And then Tim's going to lead us through a song, and we're going to take communion together. Communion is about thankfulness. Communion is about this gift that we have been given by God of salvation. We take a piece of bread, which represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was poured out through the breaking of the body of Christ, the pouring out of his blood. We find this gift of salvation. But we come today to communion with grateful hearts. Let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Lord, Lord, You are good to us. Remind us today, Lord, of the blessings that we have received. The things that we have taken for granted. The provisions that we've overlooked. How you've been with us in the midst of some dark things that have happened this year. how you provide for our needs. You give us shelter and comfort. You give us clean water, good food. You give us vehicles to drive, opportunities to work. Give us freedom to worship. You've given us freedom of oppression and tyranny. You've given us opportunity for education. You've given us joy for relationships. Lord, you are good. The season of Thanksgiving, Lord, we wanna say thanks. Lord, we wanna enjoy the wealth that you've given us. We don't wanna be entrapped by it. Pray that you would give us perspective on how we travel through this world. Remind us that our lives are temporary. Lord, that we would be content, that we would be able to slow down, that we'd be able to stop chasing things that are unhealthy, that we wouldn't believe lies that we aren't enough and that we need more, that we wouldn't be greedy, that we would use our resources as a blessing and a gift to others around us that we'd be wise in this world, that we would find true riches and life that is truly life in you, that you would teach us to be great, Lord. In your son's name we pray, amen.